Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The United Nations General Assembly. It's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, gathering of world leaders each year. And this week, EU Confidential is coming to you from New York City, the home of the United Nations. But unfortunately, the mood is anything but festive. Our world is in peril and paralysed. Geopolitical divides are undermining the work of the Security Council, undermining international law, undermining trust and people's faith in democratic institutions, undermining all forms of international cooperation. We cannot go on like this. That's UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. His opening remarks were a sobering message of the high-level gathering kicked off this week. At one stage, international relations seem to be moving towards a G2 world. Now we risk ending up with a G nothing. No cooperation, no dialogue, no collective problem solving. Russia's war in Ukraine was always bound to overshadow this year's gathering. But then on Wednesday morning, Leaders woke up to the news that Russian President Vladimir Putin had announced a mobilization of army reserves and had issued a barely veiled reminder that he could use nuclear weapons. So, will this gathering of the world's heads of state and government actually manage to achieve anything? And what about the other crises, from food and energy to education and the environment? I'm Suzanne Lynch. Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent and your host of EU Confidential. We've assembled our team here in New York City who are covering the UN General Assembly and travelling with leaders such as French President Emmanuel Macron, UK Prime Minister Liz Truss and US President Joe Biden. We'll walk you through the highlights of what you need to know and you'll also hear from some leaders and top officials we've met throughout the week, including French President Emmanuel Macron, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell and other foreign ministers from across the EU. So let's dive into what's been a dizzying week of diplomacy for Europe and the world. I think it goes without question that the big issue this week was Ukraine. But on Wednesday, there was a real sense that things were escalating. Leaders here woke up to the news of Putin's speech. I caught up with some foreign ministers to get their views. Here's Irish foreign minister Simon Coveney, who attended the UN Security Council meeting on Thursday. Well, clearly now what, what we've seen from um, President Putin is, a, is an escalation uh, in terms of uh, Russian uh, intentions uh, in the context of their war in Ukraine. Um, they've announced a, a partial mobilization, which effectively means that they intend to add about 300,000 people to their armed forces 
in the context of, of the ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, that's not good news. Uh, it represents a significant escalation. Uh, and if you, if you add that to the Russian intention to hold what can only be described as sham referendums in occupied territories in Ukraine, uh, to try to create some kind of uh, false justification uh, for escalating uh, their aggression there, I think this, this signals um, a very unwelcome and worrying uh, development in the context of the war, probably the most significant development actually since Russia's invasion in February. And so the timing of that is deliberately timed for the UN General Assembly when world leaders are meeting here at the UN. And Lithuanian Foreign Minister Gabrielius Lambergis. Do you see this as a significant escalation? It is an escalation. There's uh, no other way to, to put it. Uh, but I think that uh, what is uh, needed from us is the old British war saying, keep calm and carry on. There's no other way from our side how should we see the situation. Uh, he wants us to be afraid. Uh, he, wasn't, he wants to instill fear because that's the last weapon in his arsenal um, that we would uh, try and uh, take a step back. I think we've uh, we managed to prove uh, that the policies of isolation, the policies of support for Ukraine, they worked. They brought us here, and I think that this is the point where we have to just very calmly say that we will carry on with that. And this is French President Emmanuel Macron talking to our colleague Claire Calcutt. I think uh, very clearly what we need is peace and ceasefire. And I think the decision taken during the last few hours by President Putin is a new mistake, I would say. President Putin decided to increase the level of war and his decision, I think, is a bad news for Russian people, is a bad news for young Russian people and is a bad news for Russia because it will increase the isolation of its own country. We're joined in the studio by Ryan Heath, fellow co-author of our pop-up UN playbook and an old friend of our EU Confidential podcast. And he hosts his own podcast, Global Insider. Welcome, Ryan. It is always good to be here, Suzanne. And we also have Holly Tusi, political senior foreign affairs correspondent based in Washington, D.C. Hey, Holly. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Also, our senior France correspondent, Claire Calcutt, she's currently travelling with French President Emmanuel Macron, and you'll hear from her later. And the same goes for Esther Weber, our senior UK correspondent, who you'll also hear from later in the podcast. So, Ryan, in a nutshell, we're here in New York. It's been quite the week. But look, what is the point of the UN? I mean, what, what, what makes these hundreds of dignitaries, of officials, of journalists, of diplomats all descend on the city at the same time each year? In a sentence, it's cheaper than another war, and it's a lot better than millions of people getting killed. So however annoying anyone finds this week, and however slow and ineffective anyone finds the UN, the alternative is worse. That said, the UN often doesn't achieve its goals, and 
It has some very serious, important goals that every country in the world signed up to seven years ago, the UN Global Goals, the Sustainable Development Goals, and we're way off track on those. And when leaders come together to give speeches in the General Assembly Hall, they're often not really in a dialogue with each other. That's, that's almost the sideshow, actually. And so instead, a bunch of other groups have grafted themselves onto this whole organization and process and decided they're going to create a global festival of activism and ideas around this week. And it's all of their discussions that probably are going to change more than the speeches. Yeah, that was so interesting. Around the city, um, we've had all these different pop-up events. We've had things like the Clinton Global Initiative, the Concordia Summit, all happening outside the UN headquarters. But of course, the big issue this week has been Ukraine. Uh, We now have a situation where Russia, a member of the UN Security Council, has invaded a sovereign country. And that has been dominating events here. And I think it's kind of been one of those weeks where there was a big change midway through. On, On Wednesday here, we all woke up to the news of Putin's speech, his announcement that he was mobilizing these reserve troops and also a, a barely veiled threat to use nuclear weapons. And on Thursday, uh, we had that UN Security Council meeting, which was on Ukraine and saw some of those big figures, the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, and US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Holly, turning to you, I mean, one of the big speeches was Wednesday's speech by President Biden. How would you characterize his speech? What kind of message did he bring here? Uh, it was in some ways very traditional in the sense that whenever presidents from the United States come here, they tackle a kind of smorgasbord of issues, right? They hit a bunch of different things, sometimes very, very quickly. But look, his main focus was Russia and Ukraine. And he had some pretty sharp words about Putin's latest intentions. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. Russia has shamed uh, I was told that they actually tweaked his speech in light of Putin's announcement and uh, made it a bit tougher. And that included basically, I don't know if this is one of the new changes, but the speech said that Putin's trying to extinguish Ukraine. This war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state, plain and simple, and Ukraine's right to exist as a people. Very, very close to using uh, the word genocide, but it didn't quite go that far. And it was uh, it was pretty intense. And he basically was arguing to the world that if you really believe in the UN Charter, all of you countries who are here who helped set up this institution, uh, you need to side with Ukraine on this. It was kind of a, a veiled attempt uh, at getting people like the Indias of the world, the South Africans of the world to get off the fence, pick a side, which is something the Ukrainians have been much more forthright about this week. Uh, I'm not sure it's entirely going to work, but it was it was a push. I mean, Ryan, that's a very good point. I mean, one of the themes here this week has been the relevance of the Ukraine war for other parts of the world. And the EU, for example, a lot of EU commissioners here, we have uh, European Council President Charles Michel, we have European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. They've all been pushing this message of trying to counter Russia disinformation in the global south and try and make the case for why this is important. They have. And this is one of those situations where the West's uh, chickens are coming home to roost. So you look at the long term issues, the really long term issues like uh, colonial empires and the legacy that those empires had. Uh, That's one reason why a lot of countries in Africa and to a lesser extent Asia and Latin America are a bit suspicious of Western promises or demands. They don't feel like they're going to win by choosing a side. 
You've got shorter term issues, I would say, um, like broken promises on trade deals or climate finance. It is demonstrably obvious that rich countries promised money to poorer countries in the world uh, to help them with a green transition, and they haven't delivered it by and large. And so I think you've got a longstanding set of complaints that maybe cannot morally be mixed with the arguments around Ukraine, but they are nevertheless the diplomatic reality that Western countries face. And yeah, and so uh, when the U.S. basically says, hey, pick us over Russia, a lot of these countries, especially in Africa and in Latin America, they're like, "Um, why? You don't really come through for us, not in the ways that we need, not in a quick, efficient way that would help us. And secondly, you got to remember, China has aligned itself with Russia in this war. And so to kind of push away Russia risks chilling a lot of these countries' growing relationship with China. And that that is really important to a lot of them because for a lot of them, China is their biggest trading partner and China does a lot more for them than the U.S. does. Even though we did see a bit of a shift from China and to an extent India uh, just ahead of this U.N. General Assembly meeting. Well, talk is cheap. And so some of these countries that are critical of Russia right now, just saying things isn't really going to mean much. Yeah, let's Uh, see. Yeah. Well, I also come back to the economics of this, and I I honestly don't understand how some Western governments arrive at the conclusions that they do. You look at the extraordinary cost of energy subsidy programs that a lot of rich governments are going to have to consider, especially in Europe this winter, to compensate for high energy prices and lack of natural gas supply, for example. The cost of ensuring food security or some real action on climate change in the global south and therefore creating a global united front around issues like this is absolutely tiny compared to this cost of these other reactionary energy programs. So it doesn't make any economic sense that rich countries would put themselves in this situation. Well, actually, that economic theme was one thing the UK Prime Minister Liz Truss zoned in on during her speech. As Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, I'm determined that we will deliver the progress that people expect. I will lead a new Britain for a new era. Firstly, this begins with growth and building a British economy that rewards enterprise and attracts investment. Our long-term aim is to get our economy growing. It's an average of- Esther Webber, you're travelling with Liz Truss. How did her first uh, speech at the UN General Assembly go down? The thing about the trip that Liz Truss has made this week is it was really about introducing herself anew on the world stage for the first time as Prime Minister. She used to be Foreign Secretary, so she has made a number of this kind of trips. But this was her chance to kind of make her mark on foreign policy. And she had a clear idea of how she was going to do that. She wants to talk about expanding the G7 to other democracies so that they work together against the threats that are coming from Russia and from China. That's her big focus. So standing up to authoritarian regimes is really something she wanted to hammer home here. What's less clear is whether that really landed with people here. We've heard maybe there wasn't that much of a buzz around her debut as much as she would have liked. There was a warmth towards the UK in general, I think, coming so soon after the death of the Queen. 
but with all eyes on Biden and Zelensky, I think we see that she sort of struggled to punch through a bit. Thanks, Esther. Our colleague Claire Colcott is travelling with French President Emmanuel Macron. Claire, how do you assess Macron's speech? It was a pretty strong intervention by the French President. Yes, hi Suzanne. Sorry for the background noise. I'm at the end of an event with Emmanuel Macron, which I, I've been following him around these couple of days. Um, yes, and he indeed, as you say, a very uh, Emmanuel Macron made a very forceful speech here at the UN. Il est une chose sûre et certaine. Au moment où je vous parle, il y a des troupes russes en Ukraine. Et à ma connaissance, il n'y a pas de troupes ukrainiennes en Russie really uh, attacking Russia, attacking Vladimir Putin for his sort of sham decision to hold referendums in Ukraine. Uh, You know, this sort of phony alternative that Russia is trying to offer to the world. And and, uh, he really made a a forceful appeal to uh, countries that are sort of sitting on the fence. So countries such as South Africa, such countries such as India, as Brazil, who have uh, sort of, you know, been reluctant to condemn too forcefully Russia in the conflict. And, uh, you know, he appealed to them on, you know, grounds of, of pragmatic, saying that Russia is destabilizing the world order and that's not good for anybody. It's interesting because today was a day of really high tension after the, uh, you know, Russia's decision to partially mobilize reservists. Uh, so I was at an event here. It was a mega fundraiser for uh, to fight malaria and other diseases. You know, so quite a, a joyful atmosphere because, you know, lots of money was being put together to fund loads of operations. And yet you, you could see that really the minds of the leaders here. So we had Olaf Scholz, Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau. You know, they, they were sort of closing in on each other and having sort of whispered talks and exchanging notes um, as uh, people went on stage to make speeches and very much you know, the next steps in the conflict being discussed behind the scenes. How is, you know, the West going to react, uh, whether it's fresh EU sanctions coming along and uh, other measures, for example, to protect, um, you know, nuclear power plants in Ukraine, all these sorts of discussions that are happening at the moment. Thanks, Claire. So look, it has all been about Ukraine here this week. Um, we heard uh, from the EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, about how Europe needs to you know, stick with this, that they won't submit to threats from Russia. Well, I think that Putin believes that uh, the democracies are weak. And the democracies will not resist uh, being in an uncomfortable situation. As I said, he's waiting for general winter, no? General winter comes, the cold is coming, and there is no gas, and people have to face scarcity, energy supply, high prices. They will change their mind. That's what Putin is waiting for. And we have to prove that we are resilient, that we face this challenge, that we do our best in order to overcome this difficulty, but without weakening our support. And that's what we have to explain to our people. The EU now, we we know, is preparing more sanctions against Russia. One of the themes, though, was also the question of a war crimes tribunal. And we heard from some ministers we spoke to during the week. 
Ukraine wants an ad hoc specific war crimes tribunal to hold Russia accountable for the atrocities that are now emerging in their country. Uh, but a lot of other countries are happy to go down the route of the International Criminal Court or the UN or established methods. Uh, let's hear from the Czech Minister of Foreign Affairs, Jan Lepofsky. Uh, we are not able to prosecute the act of aggression. So specifically for the act of aggression, we need to create a special tribunal which would officially said, yes, Russia committed act of aggression. And then we have a ICC, and ICC should deal with all the other acts of inhumanity, which we are witnessing again in Izium, uh, where the, the horrible atrocities are discovered right now. So you're referring there to the International Criminal Court. There does seem to be a push by a lot of countries to just go down that route, that that's the best way to address this, not through an ad hoc tribunal. The point is that ICC cannot prosecute the act of aggression. So the special court should be established only just for the act of aggression. I think with close coordination with ICC, it makes sense. But in the end of the day, if we want to prosecute the act of aggression, we need to go through this way. And therefore, I'm calling for it. So can you explain why the act of aggression is so important? Uh, The act of aggression uh, will definitely point on who created the whole situation since the Russia is tries to all the time present it as a, some kind of special military operation this is total nonsense but as an international community we need to have a right answer on what's wrong and to be able to put it on paper so called. so in international law the act of aggression is seen as the supreme crime and um, when exactly. it comes to human rights uh, and it's and prohibited by the UN Charter yeah I'm just wondering what is your reaction to the atrocities in Izium and what you know do you think this has changed the the dynamic the debate I hope that it will bring more support for the idea of responsibility and accountability and um, honestly there is a large territory of Ukraine still being occupied by Russian forces right now and um, we can just uh, ask question what will be discovered here when Ukraine will take control of those territories. Earlier this week, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell spoke exclusively to Politico and said that he was open to this idea of a specific war crimes tribunal for Ukraine. We are very much in favour of making the Russians accountable for what they have done. And since Russia and Ukraine are not part of the international penal court, it would be maybe a good idea to look for a special jurisdiction. I know that is difficult, but what we cannot afford is that these things happen and nothing is accountable for it. So do you think there might be support within the EU for a special ad hoc tribunal then? Why not? Let's see how that debate continues among EU ministers over the coming weeks. Another theme this week has been food security. And we had the US side uh, co-hosting an event on Tuesday. I mean, what kind of things have you been hearing, Ryan, about this whole issue of food insecurity across the globe? Well, I interviewed Pedro Sanchez, the Spanish prime minister, on Monday. And he was one of the engineers of that summit. And the point that he was trying to make, and it's one that comes through when you talk to other UN officials, is that food security is linked to other issues like climate change and poverty. And you really can't sever the connections between those. You have to think about all of them together. 
And if you don't invest in reducing food insecurity, there's blowback in the rich countries as well uh, in terms of more extremism, more climate refugees. Basically, the problems accumulate if you don't invest in fixing uh, things on the ground. And so I spoke to the, the man who's coming in to be head of the International Fund for Agricultural Development. And he's really important because if we just doubled the amount of money spent on fundamental agricultural research, things like getting fertilizers to work better in African soils, rehabilitating soils, things like that, it's a really small amount of money, maybe a billion a year, the Gates Foundation says, uh, you could have a dramatic impact on the number of people that are acutely uh, hungry, for example. And they're really struggling because they don't get the money that governments promise them. They've had to resort to tactics that are, are very interesting, but a bit sad that they have to resort to them. So they now have a credit rating and they've turned themselves into a financial institution, basically, so that they can issue bonds to raise money from people like Swedish pension funds or maybe one day individuals who care about this because governments continue to fail to deliver the money that's promised to this organization. And so again, it comes back to that idea that if we invested a few billions in these sorts of issues, then we would have some insurance when someone like Vladimir Putin decides to cut off grain exports or when there's other problems. And you know what one of the ironies is of all this is that a lot of this comes down to problems with democracies and how they function or don't function. I mean, one of the reasons that Biden and the West are so so angry with Putin when it comes to Ukraine is that it literally is a war between autocracy and democracy. And so this idea of protecting democracy, promoting democracy, it's really important for them. At the same time, they are leading democratic countries where you have, especially in the U.S., insane levels of partisan toxicity that have made coming to an agreement on things like funding priorities nearly impossible. And that's just for domestic stuff, much less foreign stuff. I mean, you can barely get an agreement in Congress to help fund COVID relief overseas. So when leaders like Biden go around telling the world, you need democracy, we need to protect democracy. And there's all these countries who, you know, they might be close to democracy or somewhere near it or, or not very close, but their their people are starving. And then they look at the fact that these democracies that do exist aren't coming through for them. It just undermines the very message. Absolutely. We're going to take a break there and we're going to come back to some of the other issues that featured here on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly, from Iran to energy to the whole structure of the UN Security Council. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise, and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes 
is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Secretary General, the foundational need for a better world is justice. All of the hopes and aspirations of humankind are built on justice. So, Holly, our senior foreign affairs correspondent based here in the US, another issue on the sidelines this week has been Iran. This happens every year at the UN General Assembly. The Iranians are here. They have a big presence. Did we have any breakthrough? Do you expect to have any breakthrough from this in the next couple of weeks about the stall negotiation on the Iran nuclear deal? I would not be surprised if there are some background, very quiet talks at lower levels going on regarding the Iran nuclear deal specifically, but I don't expect any sort of a breakthrough. Uh, And the Iranian president and some of the things he has said before his trip as well as during his speech has not helped the cause of getting the nuclear deal restored. Uh, He questioned the Holocaust. Uh, So it's like, you know, Iran once again trolling the world with these types of claims that make it even harder for the West to deal with him. And the Iranian government is represented here, and its president is speaking about the importance of ending injustice. Just as in Iran right now, there are all sorts of protests happening uh, because of the death of a young woman at the hands of the Iranian morality police because she was not wearing her headscarf properly. And there's all these protests and anger and a lot of injustice in Iran, but um, that is apparently not the type of injustice he wishes to speak about. Yeah, I I mean, I witnessed some of those protests out in the streets near the UN headquarters about the Iranian regime. I mean, it's been interesting. The foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell, spoke to us earlier this week and he ruled out sitting down for a meeting with President Raisi. Do you expect any development or breakthroughs this week? I always expect. <laughs> I always expect, and we have been pushing a lot, both everybody, in order to to finally run the last ten meters. And for the last three months, the interaction, the multi-step process, was converging. Mm-hmm and the interactivity between the parts were improving the result. On the last weeks, this was not the case. So now we are in a stalemate. Now we are stop. The last proposal, the last request from the Iranian side uh, was not exactly pushing for an agreement. And if I had to say today, if there is something that could happen this week, I would say, I don't think so. I mean, any plans to meet the Iranian president? He's well, here. I already went to Tehran. I did block the process. They promised me. They went to Doha. They went to, to Vienna. They have been discussing and arguing. I don't think it's something that could be solved meeting the president today. Okay. However, we did see French President Macron and European Council President Charles Michel sitting around the table with Raisi. As you say, there's nothing specific coming out of this uh, this week. And of course, we also have the US midterm elections looming in November. So I think everyone is quite skeptical about whether you know the US is really going to sign up to just something like this uh, right before those midterms. 
Another issue has been energy. It's been huge, uh, hugely important in Europe. Uh, lots of discussions going on there. So let's hear a bit from your interview, Ryan, with Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez. Uh, from even before the, this, the the beginning of the war, Spain uh, has been very vocal. You know, before the, the European Union uh, institutions advocating for a structural reform of the electricity market, yeah. uh, decoupling the gas uh, prices to the electricity prices. Mm-hmm. Also, well, taking and learning from the pandemic. Yeah. So why don't we centralize uh, gas uh, purchase as we did with the vaccines? Mm-hmm. Third, it is important not to uh, forget that we have this crisis, but we have a, a bigger crisis uh, with climate change. So these uh, answers has to be aligned. And finally, of course, since uh, the Iberian Peninsula is, uh, uh, is a kind of an energetic island because we don't have interconnections with the rest of the uh, European energy market, we, uh, we've been very vocal uh, with the need to have biggest interconnections. Mm-hmm. So in this regard, I think that Spain has a big opportunity to become an exporter of uh, green energy. Uh, to the rest of the European Union. Now, this is why we are, you know, investing or allocating, sorry, 40% of the total and next generation funds on a green transition, mm-hmm. especially on uh, a green hydrogen. And we, we want to be the leaders in Europe and why not in the world of green uh, hydrogen. One of the other. And, and sorry, yeah, and this please, is this please. is very important because mm-hmm. since we are going to have the you know in the second term of next year the European Union presidency, this, yeah. this is very important because one thing that Putin achieved with this invasion, and by the way, it also happened uh, during the pandemic, is the acceleration of the process of integration of the European Union. First, with the mutualization of the public debt. Uh, to response mm-hmm. to the pandemic uh, and economic uh, and social consequences. And uh, also with uh, this uh, invasion, Europe is responding not only with unity, mm-hmm. but with further integration yeah. on defense, on uh, energy, what we call a strategic autonomy, which is not a new way of protectionism. It is indeed the review of our industrial policy mm-hmm and to uh, promote Europe as a space uh, for uh, reindustrialization mm-hmm. and uh, be much more resilient against this attack of autocrats such as uh, Putin. Also here, there's been a lot of talk this week about reforming the UN Security Council, that it needs to reflect the makeup of the UN General Assembly better. We sat down with Danish Minister of Foreign Affairs, Jeppe Kofod, to discuss Denmark's bid to secure a seat on the Security Council in 2025. I think what we do is um, not only taking a genuine interest in in the problems facing many parts of the world, but also we are running for the Security Council also with our legacy as a package. We have many, many decades of strong development cooperation with, with primarily Africa. Uh, we were in the forefront when we uh, were facing apartheid and, and wanted to do sanctions policy at, at the time. And Denmark was a, a huge supporter of decolonization as well. So we are running uh, also on who we are as a country. Uh, we are now one of the green frontrunners country in the world. We want to be that. We have a value-based foreign policy. 
Uh, we believe that like-minded countries around the world, democracies, shall come together and defend multilateralism, defend the rule-based order, defend the UN Charter and respect of uh, collective action. We have um, equality in our society, also between men and women, and non-discrimination. So that's also very important for us. That's why I mentioned women, peace and security as one of the things that we will, uh, of course, also uh, fight for. I remember covering, um, I'm from Ireland myself, when Ireland was running for the council, they yes. brought in Riverdance, they had Bono, <laughs> any, any glamorous kind of Danish celebrities being roped in to, to help win over. Are you just going with your, your diplomatic charm and heft? Uh, well, first of all, I want to commend Ireland. But we will uh, hopefully um, also engage with humor and with Danish attitude to the world, uh, which is uh, sometimes maybe, a, uh, well, we, we hope that they will understand our humor and our sarcasm sometimes, uh, but also Danish hygge and, and, you know, building societies that, that give quality of life to people all people in society, inclusive societies. And I think if in, in my uh, interaction as foreign minister with my colleagues, what governments want is, is uh, basically to build societies uh, and they look at Denmark and the welfare state model and say, okay, here's something that, that we can offer. Um, so in that sense, we will, as I said, we will run as who we are. We will come out as who we are and then hope that that will be enough to be uh, supported. We will not come with new fancy things or... Should we expect an appearance by Borgen, maybe? Borgen will be a... It's a great asset. I, I, I have to, well, confess that I've met many, many, many colleagues from many places in the world that have seen Borgen and... Yeah, and very uh, popular exactly. Netflix series exactly, about a, a, exactly a fictional enough. Danish leader, politician. Yeah. I would say Danish politics in reality is probably a little different, um, but, but not less colourful. So thanks to Ryan Heath and Holly Toothy for joining us here in the political studios for this special edition of EU Confidential, live from New York. It's great to be here. I think I need a week's holiday now. (laughs) And thanks to our colleagues Clea Colcott and Esther Weber, travelling with the French and British leaders. And that's it for this special edition of EU Confidential, coming to you from the UN General Assembly in New York. We're heading back to Brussels. But remember that you can always get in touch directly with feedback or ideas for future guests or topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. And remember, if you haven't already, be sure to follow EU Confidential wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Thanks this week to our Politico team and Brooke Hayes on the audio side, to insiders Mike Chan and Alex Callaby for letting us use their recording studio, and to our editor in Brussels, James Randerson, and our executive producer for audio here with me in New York, Christina Gonzalez. I'm Suzanne Lynch, and thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.